millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more I'm joined by Peter Hart at my gaff. Your gaff. Hello, Pete. Hello, lovely Gary. What are we doing today, mate? Well, we're doing the 16th DLI, the beginning of a great adventure. It's mm. a bit Tolkien, isn't it? Yeah, so now this is the series, isn't it, that we're doing now, and and, and we left our friends of the 16th DLI uh, embarking from Liverpool, I yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah, uh, in uh, in December 1940-whatever it is, 42, sorry. Close. <laughs> Close. <laughs> uh, moment of blankness. And uh, they, they, what was great about it is they'd arrived in Liverpool and it, and they were rushed aboard the, the troop ship Staffordshire. Uh, what would you expect to happen as a, you, you yourself had served in the army? So you rush, rush, rush. What happens then? Nothing. <laughs> Hurry up and wait. They didn't even have time to, to sort of see Liverpool, did they? They, they only knew it was Liverpool well, because sure one, <laughs> one of them came from Liverpool and saw his ass. Yeah, well, the Staffordshire just moves out into the middle of the Mersey. Ah, oh, it moved. And then it sits there for how long, would you say? Give uh, me a- well, I know it was the best part of three days. Yeah, that's it. Now, the the, 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 the ship, it's crammed to the brim. It's a troop ship. and what, this is with? what tr- Troops. Ah. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is what Private George Forster of C Company says. We found our bedding and a bed. The lads were sleeping on tables, on hammocks and on the floor. I ended up sleeping on the dining table. Uh, there was that many troops. It was full of troops. It, it, it was not very comfortable. We happened to be right at the very bottom of the ship. And with the engines throbbing, you couldn't get any sleep. Now, they set sail at last, at last, at last, at last, uh, at 11 o'clock uh, in the morning on uh, Christmas Day. Uh, that's what day would that be? That'll be the uh, 25th of December, 1942. Yep, yep, yep. A day uh, that normally they'd have been at home with their loved ones, just like we're uh, often at home with our loved ones, aren't we? Yeah. Now it's that a was day a... of happiness and joy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're easily all... distracted, Pete. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, now it's a, a poignant moment as, as they go into war and they were well aware that some of them wouldn't be coming back. And this is what Company Sergeant Major George Gates of the HQ Company said. At last, the ship's anchor was drawn up and it moved downstream towards the open sea. Nearly all the troops on board were lining the ship's rails and no doubt, like me, they all wanted to see as much of dear old England as they could before she faded from view. Perhaps forever. I was leaning over the rail of the port side and was feeling pretty miserable. My thoughts were of the folks at home. Suddenly I was startled by the sound of loud cheers. The noise came from the starboard side and I made my way across to find out what it was all about. After a struggle, I managed to get to the rail and saw a little British destroyer steaming close alongside us. She was displaying a big white sheet and printed on it in block letters was a message of goodwill. A happy Christmas to all on board. I shall remember that greeting as long as I live. No, oh, that's that's nice. It is nice. That was uh, from uh, uh, from one of their magazines that they pre- pre- published just after the war. So it did linger in his mind at least till then. Now, the officers tried their best to comfort their men with religious services and a splendid dinner of pork, two vegetables and plum duff. Now, which would have comforted you the most? I think the plum duff. <laughs> now, the King's speech and festive prog- programmes were broadcast around the ship from the wireless. The brigadier even wirelessed a special message as recorded in the war diary. Good luck, lads, good hunting, and a safe return for next Christmas. Now, the reply confuses you slightly, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, the, the reply was sent as, uh, many thanks, we'll do best, assist, get bloody job, over. Yeah, you wanted to put the twos in, didn't you? I did want to put the twos in. <laughs> now, as soon as it got out into the open waters, the ship started to pitch and roll. Oh. Now, it's only a slight swell, but uh, these men were not natural sailors. And this is Private Gordon Ghent of the Motor Transport Section, Ninth Platoon, A Company. We went up the Irish Sea towards the Clyde. There was a big convoy coming out, and we were joining it. We got up there, and I was all right, but I, I felt a bit queasy. I stayed on deck. And by gum, it was a rough sea. I was at the back of the boat and I'm watching the ship coming up and I thought, it's never going to stop coming up. <laughs> I'm I'm sure I'll see the propeller any minute. Then down she used to go. I stayed up as long as I could. I didn't want to go below. <laughs> I had to go to the toilet. Well, <laughs> the toilet. It was a great trough along one side, running water all the time. You used to cock your bottom over that trough. I got halfway down this short flight of stairs to the heads. That's what they call the toilets on a shippy thing. And it hit me. Oh, dear me. I was bad. I never got to have a meal. (laughs) I nearly died of seasickness. I was useless. I finished up in a sick day. It was days before I got onto my feet. I think you'll find that sick bay, not sick day. I mispronounced it. Now, it wasn't just the restless movement of the ship. Everything seemed to conspire against their queasy stomachs. And once more, you're going... You're very busy. You're going to tell us what Private Tom Lister, also had the MT section, but of HQ Company, said. The Staffordshire was old, and it wasn't as clean as it might have been. Despite denials by the captain, there was oil getting into the bilges somewhere. Depending on which deck you were, the lower down you got in the ship, the more the stench was. I was on the third deck down. It didn't do anybody any good. This oily stench all the time. 
Now, of course, some bright sparks were impervious to the nausea that afflicted There's the majority. And, oh, I wonder what's coming. <laughs> now, the last thing one would expect in the army is uh, sympathy. sympathy. <laughs> and once more, why are you working hard? I can't believe it. You're going to tell us what Lance Sergeant James Drake of the Carrier Platoon HQ Company says. Believe me, I've never seen so many violently sick in all my life. They were throwing up all over the place. When I was relieved of duty, I went down into the sergeant's mess deck for breakfast and I upset one or two by asking them if they wanted a nice piece of pork fat. <laughs> I enjoyed a good breakfast because there was that many sick, so there was plenty of food that morning, as much as one could tackle. Now, as they say, there's always one, often more than one, and uh, you can imagine how popular he would have been. <laughs> Now, most of the men, they began to feel better after a couple of days. So so the officers, what would they, the NCOs, what would they organise to make them feel worse again? Uh, PT sessions and some marching up and down around the decks to try and keep up their fitness levels. Well, I remember one of the causes of that was, the, uh, you might remember, some of the troops that arrived at Gallipoli hadn't been doing that. And when they came off the boat, they weren't. They weren't, they weren't really ready for action. Now, the officers were given special instructional lectures in various useful topics, what? such as uh, what? What? minefields, Ooh. intelligence reports, and the use of the American phonetic alphabet, which they were to adopt to avoid confusion in working with the US Army. Yeah, because they're joining First Army, aren't they, which is mainly American, yeah. Ah. Now, as for recreations, there was very little to do. Ah, what do you think they resorted to? These are soldiers... Uh, reading improving books. No, cards to while away the weary hours. And once more, you're going to be Lance Sergeant James Drake of the Carrier Platoon HQ Company. What's going on? Oh, that's not him. Gambling was the main pastime. You could only get the cards out and do a a bit of the usual card games. Some used to play solo, but my soft spot was the old three-card brag. We got quite a few schools going on amongst the lads. I came out very, very well. I won quite a bit of money. <laughs> now, many of the men walked on deck, looking round at all the other ships in the large convoy. And then, on the 28th of December... Ah! There was a submarine alarm and a swathe of naval escorts leapt into frenetic action. And this is, once more, Lance Sergeant James Drake. I recall the destroyers were running fast around the whole of the convoy. We had two submarine scares. They were at full speed ahead. This is destroyers dropping the depth charges from the rear of the destroyers. <laughs> Sorry. You could see the depth charges going up into the air, dropping into the sea. And then two or three minutes after, a big spout of water coming up went, when it exploded. Although the German submarines were there, they managed to keep them out. Yeah, but people always... I mean, that must have been scary if you're on board a troop ship, pretty helpless. Now, none of the men had much idea of where they were going. Where are we going, Gary? And it remained a popular topic of discussion. After all, it really was a matter of life or death to these men. Each theatre of war had its own perils, its own disadvantages. And now I'm going to have to do something. Oh, no, Paul And tell Gary. you what Private George Forster of C Company says. I was really sure we were going out into the Far East. But when we got into the Mediterranean, everybody was surmising where we were going. Some said 8th Army. Some said the Far East. Nobody ever dreamt that it was going to be the first army in Algiers. We passed Tangiers and it was all lit up at night. Somebody shouted, come on, there's some lights out here. Everybody dashed up, one mad rush. 
It was only for about half an hour and then back into darkness. The next thing, it was dawn and there were all these white houses on land. We still didn't know where we were and we pulled into what we learnt later was Algiers. Now they got to Algiers at uh, 1300 on the 1st of January 1943. Happy New Year, eh? Uh, by, by this time, uh, and it, they, they got ashore at the quayside about late afternoon. Um, and then they're informed that they're going to have to march to a transit camp. But, Gary, but, 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 but it's all right, lads. It's only three to five miles away. Now, uh, what happened next? It, it certainly lingered <laughs> in, in their collective memory. Uh, why do you think that might be? Well, because like you, uh, they were not told the truth about the distance that the walk was. Are you saying that I tell lies when I'm guiding? Yes, you say it's much, much shorter. So their their ordeal lasted for what actually proved to be 15 long, painful miles. Uh, Anyone who's interested in coming on Peter Half Battlefield to a trip to Glibby should realise I only underestimate by a matter of about, say, a quarter of a mile. (laughs) Now, to make matters worse, it started to rain. Oh, fabulous. (laughs) And once more, this is what Private George Forster said. We marched and the officer in charge, he kept saying, it's only about three miles. The longest three miles I've ever marched. It was raining that hard. We had gas capes on. We were soaking, absolutely soaking. I think you'll find he's just observing. Uh, just observing that, yeah. Uh, they stagger into their destination, which was a eucalyptus camp at uh, Maison Carré. Uh, I'd say that the, the word camp was a euphemism. Why would I say that? Well, because it was just an empty vineyard warehouse with no concessions to comfort at all. So uh, they're just lying on the concrete. It's fabulous. Uh, the men, what, what are they doing there? Well, checking their kit, their weapons especially, of course. Uh, and they were going on route marches to get, get them up to peak fitness. Uh, they've got to collect the Bren carriers from the docks, haven't they? And then in the evening, what would they do? Well, the Liberty trucks were laid on to take men back to Algiers. What happened there was not nice but it was an understandable reaction from young men going to war. And once more, you're going to tell us what Company Quartermaster Sergeant Jimmy James, one of our favourites already of D Company, said. Yeah, of course, uh, he wouldn't have participated in any Oh, of course, nor would you or I. No, Uh, he says this. There there were three places for exhibitions, bordellos, shall we call them. They were very opulent. One was called the Black Cat, another number 22, the the other the Half Moon. Most of the battalion and every other regiment in Algiers were queuing up four deep waiting to go in, a queue three quarters of a mile long. The married men, they wouldn't think of it. They were newly out of England, they just said goodbye to their loved ones. But for the unmarried, the footloose and fancy free, soldiers are soldiers and sailors are sailors. And airmen are airmen. No, they're not, Gary. No, no, that's just wrong. Uh, There were military police at the entrances to keep order and arrest any miscreants. You had to pay to go in to see the exhibitions. That was what I wanted more than anything else. You had to go inside, you paid, and there were hundreds, and they had hundreds of red plush seats, chandeliers everywhere, and mirrors, and chrome. They were palaces. If you wanted to sit in the seats, the available ladies were walking about in circles in front of you. If anybody fancied one of these, he'd tap her on the shoulder and she'd take him away. The ladies were inspected and passed several times a day by service doctors. 
To go to the exhibitions, one had to ascend the stairs, and there were queues for that as well. It was like live theatre done by lesbians. You wouldn't see it anywhere else in the world. There, there were officers there drinking beers and senior naval officers. Seeing these people, we knew it was condoned. It was not broadcast and nobody talks about it. We were going up to the line in two or three days. And I think we both uh, recognise that this is uh, a pretty awful uh, what's going on, really, and especially for those poor ladies. But uh, it, 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 it is what it, it is. And it's, to some extent, uh, understandable. Because what, what are those men going up to, Gary? Well, they're going up the line, and that was what all the training had been about. But were they really ready for war, Pete? I'm not so sure. Well, I suppose they'll find out. Yeah. Well, absolutely. <laughs> uh, now, uh, let's set the scene. What's going on? Well, what, First Army, North Africa, what's going on, Gary? Explain it to me. Well, it became the focus of British and American efforts in 1942, didn't it? Winston Churchill was sceptical of any chances of a successful invasion of mainland Europe in 1942. And I'll tell you something that reinforced that. That was the failure of the Dieppe raid on the 19th of August. That really put the, 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 set the cat amongst the pigeons, didn't it? However, he was also, that's Churchill, under severe pressure to launch a second front to help uh, Soviet Russia, which was engaged in a titanic battle with the main force of the German army. And again, this is something we want to emphasise, isn't it? Uh, because we're British, we tend to focus on the British, but it's the, the Russians, the Soviets, that are fighting the war at this time, isn't it? And it also demonstrates the difficulties of, uh, of, of allied warfare. Sometimes you have to do things in support of your ally. Now, Churchill, he was pressing for a concentration on the Mediterranean theatre of war. Uh, well, uh, this seems familiar to me. What, what am I thinking of here? Well, his long-standing belief in seeking out a soft underbelly You've got a soft to attack. Underbelly. Yeah, notwithstanding the utter failure of such a strategy in the Great War, which uh, was highlighted by the Gallipoli, Salonica and Mesopotamia campaigns. Yeah, so Churchill wanted to clear the Germans out of North Africa, <clears throat> but then there was mission creep because he also wanted to clear the Mediterranean and then assault Italy. Uh, the Americans, they sort of grudgingly fall in with this. Um, uh, they, they, they thought they were postponing the invasion of mainland, uh, uh, you know, well, France, Mainland Europe until yeah. 1943 is what you're trying to say. I'm trying to say that. I just, I mean, what became D-Day? Mm. That would obviously we know now it was 1944, but they thought it was only being postponed to 43. Um, yeah, but they also harboured serious doubts about any future invasion of Italy. I'm not bloody surprised. Now, in the end, a real assault on Fortress Europe, as you alluded to, I did. I've just said that. Would have to wait until the 6th of June. 1944. That's a long time, isn't it? Now, the path was set. An offensive would be launched by the 8th Army, who Who's was under General Bernard Montgomery, which would push out from El, Alam El Alamein and drive the Panzer Army Africa, who was under... General Erwin Rommel. ...through Libya and right back to Tunis. Now, that while they're being distracted just a bit like me at times. Uh, on 8th of November 1942, the, the uh, Americans under the overall command of Lieutenant General Dwight Eisenhower would make a series of landings uh, uh, French North Africa. Uh, that w so let's go through them. The Western Task Force at Casablanca on the... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, that's... Where is Casablanca? It's on the African coast of Morocco, is it? It's yes. the Atlantic coast. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Did I say African? I'm going bonkers, aren't I? The Central Force at Iran, that's on the Algerian coast, and the uh, Eastern Force at... uh, Algiers. Algiers. See, I'm getting vague on this already. Um, Now, um, so what happens? What happens? What happens, Gary? Well, after an initial resistance, the French first signed a truce and then joined the Allies provoked by the German move into the hitherto unoccupied area of Vichy, France. So uh, so what the, the Allies then, collective Allies, start to push the Germans eastwards. So, uh, and, and this becomes the First Army. And who commands that? I think it's General Kenneth Anderson. Never heard of him. And uh, it consisted of the US Second Corps, the British Fifth Corps and the French 19th Corps, while Eisenhower set up his supreme headquarters in Algiers. Now, initially, they were successful. The First Army makes pretty rapid progress. They're pushing east towards Tunis. Uh, and they're assisted by uh, British subsidiary landings, uh, first at Bougie and then Bone. I can say Bone. Now, however, the Axis resistance stiffened as Hitler decided that Tunisia had to be held at all costs. Reinforcements were flown in and a 5th Panzer Army under Colonel General Hans-Jürgen von Armin, consisting of one armoured division and two infantry divisions, was created to defend Tunisia. That sounds more like a corps than an army to me. Uh, uh, now, 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 in the northern sector, the, 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 the British 78th Division were... were brought to a shuddering halt uh, uh, when German paratroopers, uh, they were, like paratroopers so often do, operating in a ground capacity, uh, ambushed the Bren carriers of the 8th Argyle and Southern Highlanders as they advanced along the road. Now, that road passes uh, through the range of hills just east of Sedgenin. That happened on the 24th of November, 1942. 29th of November. Yeah, 29th. You were close. My eyesight's dreadful. You got the year right. Yeah. I got the month right as well. Now, the Germans took up strong defensive positions on a line centred on three large hills. What were they called? Green Hill, uh, DJ Azag. Baldy Hill, I want that one. That's DJ El Ajved. And Sugarloaf. That's DJ Azag. They, they sound like DJs. Yes. <laughs> now, not all uh, North Africa's desert. And, uh, and uh, what, happened, uh, what happens in winter? Well, pouring rain marked the onset uh, of winter, reducing the roads to mud-filled ruts and rendering life a misery for the troops up on the hillsides. And then the Germans, what would they do? What what did Germans often do? Well, further to the south, they um, counter-attacked. That's a surprise. On the 1st of December, and soon First Army was locked in a static battle reminiscent of the Western Front 1914-1918. So that's the sort of vague outline. And, uh, you know, I'm getting a bit vague about all this already. Um, uh, now, well, so, so what, where's the 16th DLI fit into this, Gary? Well, for them, the journey to the front begins when the men and then the Bren gun carriers were in train to take them forward some 500 miles, blimey, as a small part of the 46th Division. Now, let's remind our listeners what that is. What is the 46th Division? It's a division. Thank you. Consisting of the 128th Brigade, the 138th Brigade, and the 139th Brigade. Ooh, and that's what uh, the. And who commanded them? Uh, But this time it was Major General Harold Freeman Atwood. 
Mm. Now, it proved to be a very tiresome, uncomfortable journey. I should think it would be 500 miles as the trains travelled at what seemed to be a snail's pace. And this is what Sergeant Russell King of 17 Platoon D Company said about that. We seem to be on this train forever and ever. I think you could have bloody marched faster than what this train was going. The train stopped and I said to this bloke, go and get me some water, I'll have a shave. The engine driver wouldn't give him any water. So I went up to this engine driver and I'm trying to talk pidgin French to him about wanting low. And he was from bloody crook. That crook, I ought to explain for those who don't know, is in the Weir Valley in Durham. Uh, he was a postman. I couldn't believe it. He was in the Royal Engineers and he was driving a train. Mm. Love it. This Durham lads get everywhere. At this point, we'll take a short break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Durham's finally arrived at, ooh, Gardimau. That's spelled G-H-A-R-D-I-M-A-O-U. Gardimau? Uh, I'm glad I didn't get that one. On the 15th of January, 1943. They then moved by lorry to the reserve lines at Sejanane. Now, the senior officers went of the battalion went forward to, to look at, look at the, the positions that they were going to take over from the 5th Royal East Kent Regiment, often known. Steady the buffs. Steady, steady. Plans were laid for the relief operation, and that would occur on the night of the 17th of January. And this is what Private George Forster of the C Company, 16th DLI, said. In the early morning, we moved, and everybody had to be quiet as we went. No shouting, no loud speaking. It was dark when we went into these positions, and out comes the Kent lads, and all they said was, the best of luck to you. We took over their positions facing Green Hill. Slit trenches everywhere. You could get two or three men in, depending how long they were. About seven or eight foot long and as deep as they could get down. Most of them are about three foot six inches to four foot. At the most, about three foot wide. After we'd been there a while, we went scrounging and we found some steel and we put that over the top so that if any mortars dropped or shrapnel, it hit the steel plates. We used to use compo boxes put them together to make a bed. Now, compo boxes are, are what the rations are in, compo, composite rations. Well, yeah. Now, these slit, uh, slit trenches, they're facing the Germans. As he said, they're on Green Hill and Baldy Hill. I wonder why it's called Baldy Hill, Baldy. <laughs> so cruel. 
Now, in front of the British positions, there was barbed wire and a minefield across the road that wound through the back. Sarah, I made myself giggle. Now, a railway line ran through the uh, ridge and towards the German positions. That'll be a tunnel, I expect. Now, initially, A Company was on the right of the plateau to the south of the railway line. C Company was on the left, occupying the ridge on either side of the railway tunnel. B Company was acting as a flank guard on the right flank. And D Company was in reserve while the HQ Company was based in the tunnel, as you rightly said. That's quite complicated, isn't it? Anyway, Private Tom Turnbull of B Company said this. Everything was quiet. We used to get the occasional mortar shell across. Morning stand two was just about an hour before daybreak till daybreak. Everybody went in the slit trenches and you were on the alert. You didn't know what was going to happen. The officer or NCO would be moving around to see if everything was all right. During the day, somebody was always on guard in the trenches for about two or three hours at a time. Now, the ones who weren't in the forward slit trenches would be, well, only 10 or 20 yards back. uh, And they were in dugouts made by the, the previous units on the reverse slopes of the ridge. Now, there were, however, some grim signs of the fighting in, in no man's land, i.e. in between their ridge and Greenhill and Baldy. Uh, and this is what Private George Forster of C Company said about that. There were three or four bring gun carriers on the road, uh, which belonged to the Argyle and Southern, Sutherland Highlanders. We could see them in the bottom, and the Germans could see them from their positions. There were dead soldiers in them and they'd been there for a few weeks. We tried to get in to fetch the bodies out, but every time we got anywhere near, they used to open up artillery, mortar fire and machine gun fire, so we never did get them out. Now, you've got to... How do you think it was for the lads up there on the ridge? I mean, how would you feel? I mean... Well, the days would would feel endless, wouldn't they? They'd just... just Time would just go really slowly. And in fact, this is what Private George Forster said. There was no activity, no troop movements or anything like that. Not in daylight, you just lay down. You slept during the day. Very boring. There was no risk of being shot at because we were on the back side of the hill. There was only the two chaps up on top with a periscope. When it was our turn for duty, we used to go in a big slit trench right on the top of the hill. Officers used to come round and you weren't allowed to smoke during the night because when you lit a match, the Germans could see it. Sometimes, if you got in your slit trench, put a coat over, you could have a smoke in the back, but you weren't supposed to. You had a periscope and you could see all the German defences down below about a thousand yards away. They were dug in, in the hillside. On a morning at dawn, you could see them coming out and shaking their blankets. We told our officer, and next thing we knew was the Royal Artillery officer came up, stayed the night with us, and he saw them. He was on a field telephone and he directed the guns where to fire. It was fantastic. Now, the, 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 this is a point. You remember we did the South Knots Hazards and artillery is very important. Now, clearly the infantry don't always notice what's going on around them. They're, they're a bit preoccupied with their own problems. But we want to just pay tribute to the artillery because their artillery, who were the, the, uh, the artillery supporting the 16th DLI? Well, it was by the 24-25 pounder guns of 70th Field Regiment. That's the 277 battery, 279 battery and 449 battery. And they're, and they're, they're big guns, 25 pounders. 25 pounders, well, they're, they're, well, they're the field guns, yeah. yeah. 
uh, and uh, they're a really important part of the story. It's just we won't mention that much because, funny enough, the infantry don't mention them that much, but they were important. Now, so that's the troops in the front line. Where where are B echelon? Everything else? Well, they're located back at Sedgenain. Now, this was the logistical heart of the battalion. Where was held the uh, motor transport? The food, food supplies. Yeah, the kit and ammunition. And there was also an old tobacco factory, which acted as a rest centre for the men coming back from the front line. Now, <clears throat> what were, they used to hide the MT in, in the thick cork woods, which were, which were all around the Sedgenin. Uh, and, and there's a point of that. Why, why would you hide the MT? Well, uh, because the, uh, the, the beer echelon personnel had a vital role. Indeed, the men at the front couldn't have existed without the food and ammunition supplies, which was brought up by Lorry, MT, at so what, night. What, you're just ignoring my question. Why would they hide in the woods? So that they can't be seen. Who by? Prying eyes from above. Aeroplanes? No. I thought, like, <laughs> tall people with very large eyes. I've now got a cartoon picture of a very tall person with bulging eyes going, I can see you, MT. <laughs> but it was the transport was important. Without the transport, the logistics would have fell down. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that's what B Echelon's all about, isn't it? Uh, and uh, this is what Private Gordon Ghent, uh, MT section, 9 Platoon uh, A Company said. He's attached to them anyway. The mud, dear me, we had to plough through on our Canadian trucks. That's obviously what they're equipped with at the time. We had a very good heavy chains to put on the wheels. They were meant for use for ice and snow, but they were invaluable in mud because we were in and out from this lager area up the line each night with food, carrying, up the, ra carrying the rations for the lads. Ammunition as well. Every night there was a convoy went up. No lights on. Hairpin bends. A Donar. That's a, a that's a motorcycle rider. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. Led the convoy. He was the only one with a little light on his motorbike. We had no lights at all in front. We were just following a tiny light on the differential at the back of the truck in front of the uh, view. What the differential is that on the the, the turny thing? Axle. Yeah. yeah. It's like a fag end. When I saw that road in daylight that we'd been travelling up, my heart nearly stopped. You couldn't see the bottom. No fences or anything. It means it's a chasm. Now, the trucks could only get so far forward, then it was all down to the muscle power of ration parties sent back from the companies in the line. And this is Private George Foster of C Company. He's our favourite. The rations came up at dusk. They were brought to about a mile or so behind the lines and we had to detail a party to carry these compo boxes. Each man needs to carry one. Seven man rations for one day. There was a tin of 50 cigarettes, tins of cheese, tins of jam, tins of rice pudding, biscuits, hardtack, tea, sugar and milk all in one powder. You just took your mug to the cooks and they topped you up. You got tins of McConaughey's meat and veg stew. It had to be warmed up. And a little bit further back from us, a petrol blower like a primer stove to warm it up. They used to warm it up and carry it up to the lads in a hay box. Quite palatable. It filled an empty hole. Yeah, it's it's plain and simple food. But what would you say? Yeah, it's, it's well, all... quite a lot of it was still in use in the 70s. The, the tins of cheese and uh, jam and stuff like that. You didn't get the cigarettes uh, in compo rations in the 70s then. Poor old you. No. 
But the biscuits were there. You used to add hot water to them and make a porridge. And it, it is just simple food, uh, but it, it's what you need in active service conditions, isn't it? Um, what's most important about it? Well, it's to ensure that the food always arrived on time. Um, and the simplicity of the compost system actually facilitated that. What about water? Well, that was limited, uh, although they did find a small stream on the reverse slope that allowed them to have a wash and a shave. But they were still afflicted by pests that their fathers could have warned them about from the Great War Service. Is that the Vickers? Uh, lice. And this is uh, Company Quartermaster Sergeant Jimmy James. I was lousy. I caught the buggers. I was given by Bert Newman a great big tin of carbolic anti-louse powder. It was called AL63. I actually looked that up to check it. I remember that. Well, I put some of that on my balls. <laughs> and I jumped a mile. I thought I'd ruined me bloody self. I went to the doctor and he laughed his head off. He said, you silly bastard. Balls are sweaty. It'll be all right. They won't fester and drop off. <laughs> oh, army doctors are so sympathetic. Uh, having the time, I took my shirt off and used to have a cigarette lighter, get the flame up, and I'd go right up the seam of my shirt. Under the arms as well. I wasn't, I wasn't long enough to burn the shirt, but it would burn the lice, swell them up and burst them, and I bloody popped the lot. Pop, 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 pop. All those lice dead. <laughs> now another pest familiar to their forefathers in Flanders were the rats although they seem to have come in several varieties and this is uh, Lance Corporal Thomas Atkinson of B Company Is this me again? It is you again Great big coloured rats used to come round the place stripy ones, big ones, little ones some men when they, wanted, when they went to sleep put lit candles by their head to keep these rats away from them then they used to put some biscuits on the roof, suspended by a string. We used to watch the rats crawl up the side, go along the top, and then dive into the basket of hardtack biscuits. They'd do that several times until they tore a hole in it. Then they would all congregate in the middle of the hut, eating the biscuits. Then we would bang at them with our bayonets. <laughs> Meanwhile, on most nights, a combination of standing, recce and fighting patrols were out in no man's land, filling their way to determine the exact location and strength of the German defences. Oh, and I'm, I'm so busy. Once more, I'm going to be Private George Forster. Seven of, seven of us and the NCO, you, you and you, the NCO would say, try and see if you can find what's behind that part of the hill. We used to blacken our faces. We used to get the cork from the cork trees at Sedgenane and burn it. It was like charcoal. We wore plimsolls uh, and denims, your rifle or your bren gun. You were probably out two hours across into enemy lines, seeing what you could pick up, see what you could find, take any prisoners you could catch. We used to walk in single file, no talking, no noise whatsoever. It was all whispering. The first one, when we got back, we'd lost a man. He'd been taken prisoner. We must have passed a German platoon and they collared the back one. We knew nothing about it. After that, we devised a method of some thin string. It used to be round everyone's arm and you could feel if somebody was taken, but it never happened after the first time. 
We get right up to the front line, 20, 25 yards away. Sometimes you would hear them talking. If they spotted you or thought they spotted you, they used to fire very lights and start firing mortars and machine guns. We would just drop flat and stay there for probably a quarter of an hour and then make your way back to our lines. It all sounds a bit tense, doesn't it? Yeah, any moment they could be ambushed, of course, and it certainly didn't help when uh, they knew they were meant to provoke a reaction. And this is Sergeant Russell King of 17 Platoon D Company. There was a standing patrol and they got up on this hill, hillside where they had observation of all the German area. The standing patrol, that's, it, it sees what it says, it just sits there, doesn't it? Their job was to pinpoint where all the German fire was coming from. We on the fighting patrol were told that we were going to try and attract the fire, which wasn't very pleasant. We made our way along this hillside, all cactus and bad going. There was the company commander in front. I'm more or less adjacent to him and I went to go through this gap and he pulled me back quite quickly because he must have seen they had a tripwire across this gap. We all stepped over it then, told the blokes to step over this tripwire. We hadn't gone maybe another 50 yards and this big German stood almost right in front of us and shouts, Handy Hock! Bugger! <laughs> all hell was let loose. It was like bloody Guy Fawkes Day. All the bloody German army went to panic stations. Talk about attracting fire. I think we attracted all the bloody fire that there was. We made our way back rather hurriedly. <laughs> when we got back, we had a count and there was two blokes missing. O'Leary, the mortar man, the mortar man, sorry, was one of them and his mate. No doubt about it. We should have counted them up before we started back. It's one of those things. The company commander said, we'll have to go back for him. Him and I went back. By that time, the bloody place was alive. You couldn't move for shell fire, mortar fire, odd rifles and spandows going off. All sorts. We went back to where we'd been. Couldn't find them. Couldn't find a bloody trace of them. We got back to our own lines. It must have been three or four o'clock in the morning. As far as we were concerned, they were missing. Lo and behold, the next night, O'Leary came in as bold as brass. He'd walked right in front of the minefield in front of us. He'd got lost in the pandemonium and had been laid up in the cactus all that day. Blimey. Wonder what happened to his mate. Yeah, I noticed that story didn't feature his mate. Hmm. Now, on one occasion, a foot patrol was sent out to check the crash crash site of an aircraft shot down by a German fighter. Now, for Oswald MacDonald, it was a horrific experience. Yeah, I'd like to say that uh, I remember listening to this uh, and uh, I would advise those of a nervous disposition uh, not to listen to this. And this is Private Oswald MacDonald of B Company. It's going to be you, isn't it? We had an idea of where it had landed in no man's land. Sergeant Dowell and myself had to go and find out what had happened. Dowell said, you go down there. I'll stand back and give you covering fire in case anyone comes. The pilot was in the cockpit. I'm trying to move him about, looking for his identification disc. And as true as I'm sat here, his eyeball was hanging out like on a string, moving about. He was a South African bloke, and he didn't have any disc on him. But they used to have on the back of your shirt your army number to distinguish whose it was. I had to get my jackknife out and cut the collar to take that so that they could recognise who he was. It was really dreadful with his eye moving about. At the time, it didn't worry me at all. We went back and about two hours after I was trembling, couldn't control it, panicking, an aftershock, I suppose. 
Blimey, that's quite a tale, isn't it? Can you just picture that, the eye hanging down his cheek? Now, most of the men, they were... How do you think they were managing? You know, this is their first experience. What do you think? Well, they're, they're coping quite well, aren't they? But there was at least one case of what the authorities considered to be a self-inflicted wound. Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, I couldn't decide. To be honest, I don't think the people at the time could decide, really decide. Well, it was difficult to tell what really happened. And uh, this is what Sergeant John Douglas of C Company said about the incident. I had one man there, a young lad, 18 or 19, blew his finger off. He said, it was an accident, Sarge. I couldn't help it. He'd put his rifle behind the trench. He'd reached out to get it, got hold of it by the muzzle to pull it, and the grass or something must have caught in the trigger, and it went off. I said, well, why the hell didn't you have the bloody safety catch on? He said, I cleaned it and forgot to put it back on. The lad was upset. His bloody hand was all powder burns and a finger missing. It could have been an accident. He could have done it on purpose. I don't know. I don't think he did himself. I don't think he did myself Yeah. They took him away and he was on a charge for a self-inflicted wound. I never heard about what happened to him. And he ju- uh, I mean, I mean, how would you know? Well, it's difficult, certainly in that circumstance. Now, on the 22nd of February 1943, the B Company headquarters came under German mortar fire. And this came as a total surprise to Thomas Atkinson. Yeah, he's a Lance Corporal in B Company. He said this, I was wrestling with this chap, Johnny Fox. We were having a bit of fun. Then this mortar came over and a piece hit him. I had to have a look at him and he had a huge hole in his kidneys. We did what we could for him, but it was hopeless. I tried to put a field dressing on, but he was dead within seconds. It didn't seem long. (laughs) It was rather a shock to all of us. That night we got orders to withdraw into Sedgenane. As it got dark... I and one of the uh, one of the other stretcher bearers got on this pickup truck and they took us back in the dark to collect the body. It was quite heavy work because it was over rough country and the truck was about two or three miles away and we had to carry this body back. Took him back to Sedgenane and then we had to dig a grave and bury him. Wow. Mm, infantry. Yeah. Mm. Now, the companies, we all take it in turn to hold the line and to have rest periods back at the Sedgenane Tobacco Factory. And once more, this is Private George Forster of C Company. He's he's featuring large this week. It was a cracking interview. We went back down to Sedgenane for a bath, clean up and a good wash, a change of clothing. One or two of them had lice. It was just one of those things. The Royal Engineers made showers of a salt. It was a 50-gallon drum with water in. You pulled the handle when you got a shower. There were toilets there as well in the woods. A wooden pole across a big pit. It was a bit uncomfortable. Yes, it would be. Now, you, you're a man who suffered from Bain's disease in Gallipoli. Were the toilets like that in Gallipoli? Yes. No, they weren't. No. They did move about a lot, though, didn't they? They did when I was in them, yes. Now, the Germans knew exactly where the Durham's rest area was, and they'd frequently launched sudden air raids. Now, one raid came just as D Company was about to commence a delousing parade. And once more, this is Company Quartermaster Sergeant Jimmy James of D Company. I was sitting in the centre with the Regimental Quartermaster Sergeant Golightly. I, I had to get down there... <laughs> because the bombs started falling. 
moaning, screaming stukas going round and round in circles like eagles. They came down one by one, dead down on the buildings, firing everything they had. We were the target. We knew because we looked up at the corrugated iron roof and saw thousands of daylight holes appearing. That's the bullets going through, isn't it, Gary? Uh, and the bullets were bouncing around the concrete floor. The old Akaks outside stood their ground and they were very vulnerable, those Akak chaps. Bum, 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 non-stop. It must have been firing right into the eyeballs of the German pilots. Bloody bombs came down. Boom! I counted 13 bombs all around. Still the bloody bullets were coming through and we weren't hit. I was so frightened that I scraped the concrete with my nails trying to get under the bloody thing. I made my fingers bleed. That was the terror. There were nine dead men just there. The bomber dropped where they were. One had his guts removed. One had one in his forehead. I recognised them. They were signallers. A Roman Catholic padre, a young, beefy-faced Irishman, appeared on the scene. He knelt down and he gave them the last rites. That's terrible. That's horrific, isn't it? Yeah, it is terrible. So, uh, so that that's the sort of story. Uh, now they've been they've been filtering back co- company by company, but the, there's a relief of of the whole lot. When's that? Twenty third of February, nineteen forty three. Uh, the whole of one hundred brigade was withdrawn to become the 9th Corps Reserve. The sixteenth DLI was concentrated at Saint and a few days later, the storm breaks. Oh, is this another tense break? It is. Now, if you're to cheat. <laughs> Look ahead, see what happens. You can buy foot sloggers, which uh, slogger, or one of the two anyway. Foot sloggers. Yeah, I don't know what it's called. Who's it by? It's by me. But really, it's by the lads. Uh, and we always say this, don't we? Because they're the ones who did all the work. They're the ones, it's their story. Uh, I'm just the man who was lucky enough to be allowed to interview them for the War Museum. Uh, what a privilege that was. Anyway, that's it for uh, what, what, what's going to happen, Gary? What's going to happen? Well, you'll have to tune in next time, or possibly the time after, depending on the scheduling, to find out. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash pg. MH or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah and we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?